welcome to Carrying on the Go, your exclusive access to the latest news and commentary from the current issue of Caring for the Ages, the official newspaper of AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Statements made by guests on the podcast are their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the position of the society. A speaker's appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them, their views, or any entity they represent. This podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. And now we welcome you to Carrying on the Go. Welcome to Carrying on the Go. 2022 is offering some exciting new times in post-acute and long-term care medicine. And with that, some changes to this Caring on the Go podcast of the AMDA on the Go podcast family. Uh, I will be stepping away as your moderator, but I am extremely excited to welcome Dr. Carl Steinberg, our current president of the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine, uh, to the role. Uh, Dr. Steinberg, as the uh Editor-in-Chief Emeritus of Carrying on the Go is well-suited to take this podcast to its next highest levels. Welcome, Carl, to Carrying on the Go. Thank you very much, Dr. Saltzman, and you are too kind. And it's really an honor to be following in Wayne's footsteps here. He has done just such an amazing job, not just with Carrying on the Go, but with the whole series. And uh, we at AMDA very much appreciate all the work you've done. So so thank you for that. And I just want to, for our listeners, I'm going to disclose that this is my first gig as a podcast host. So please be gentle in your judgments. And I'm going to do the best I can. And I'm sure there'll be a little bit of a learning curve as we go along. Um, I also want to really thank Dr. Elizabeth Gaelic, who is the editor and who will be our guest on pretty much all of these podcasts. Uh, she has done a fabulous job of taking over the reins at Caring for the Ages, uh, which is just one of my favorite things, uh, favorite things to read and has been since long before I was the editor. So uh, thank you and uh, welcome to you, Dr. Gaelic. Thanks so much, Carl. I'm, I'm thrilled to, to be with you today and um, excited to share some information about the articles. And then at the end, get to ask you a couple questions about the great article that you wrote. Great. So today we're going to be discussing the January-February combined issue of 2022 of Caring for the Ages. And uh, one of the front page articles is about sepsis. So I and I encourage all listeners to punch it up and read this article, uh, as well as reading the whole thing cover to cover, as I'm sure you all do every month. But uh, so let's talk about sepsis, Beth. So, um, you know, I, I think Caring for the Ages really tries to have a good clinical article in every issue. And, you know, during this time um, when we're seeing so many uh, spikes in cases of COVID, um, it's hard to see a silver lining. Um, but as uh, one of our uh, wonderful members um, and chair of AMDA's um, Infection Advisory Committee Swati Gar mentioned that the silver lining with COVID is that we 
um, post-acute and long-term care really stepped up their game in terms of being able to uh, do, be do a better job in terms of um, treating in place um, and with IVs and other treatments, as well as having um, goals of care uh, discussions. Uh, well in advance of, of the time of needing them. And so I think those things um, we can apply really to early identification uh, and treatment of sepsis. And this article, I'm just going to touch on a couple key points. Back in 2018, um, the Surviving Sepsis Campaign um, received um, more uh, press um, with AMDA. And it this really... Um, shows the October 2021 updates um, where there are more nuanced um, guidelines that are presented. So before there was an emphasis on really starting antibiotics and fluids early. And now there's a greater differentiation between whether or not someone has possible sepsis or um, signs of shock. And if there is more probable sepsis and signs of shock, you would go ahead and um, do more IV fluids and more antibiotics. Whereas now you have this period where you're allowed to do um, um, uh, in a closer investigation. And so uh, antimicrobials may not be started um, right away, but within a three-hour time period, if it's appropriate. So having right. that flexibility really makes um, a big difference. Right. I saw that you know the old recommendations were to get things rolling within one hour, which in our setting is really a challenge. I think three hours is certainly more doable. Although, uh, you know, what does stat mean? It's very different from one facility to another. And really, should our nurses be the ones collecting specimens? Should they be drawing blood cultures and whatnot so that you can get the antibiotics and IV fluids rolling? And that's something that I think each facility uh, and each uh, you know corporation that runs facilities needs to be thinking about. But I love the idea of treating people in-house and not subjecting them to that whole uh, nightmare, really, of going to the hospital. And we know well what happens to people when they go to the hospital. Uh, so if it's not really, really necessary, it's great to be able to treat them in place. And right now, really trying to keep them out of the ER is important given the COVID spikes we're seeing. The other thing that I thought was interesting about this article um, was um, one of the um, contributors in terms of interview information, Dr. Reyes, um, said that with electronic medical records, now we have a lot of data that we didn't have before, and it can allow us to do a little machine learning to learn from past cases of people who had sepsis in that facility and what it looked like and what were some of the signs. So I, I thought that was kind of an interesting point as well. We don't, we often complain about the EMR, but um, we often don't consider it um, that in some cases it can be our friend in terms of all that great data. Right. Well, I love the idea of sort of an S kit. And I, I think uh, for our listeners, it would be great to uh, read the article, do a little bit deeper digging, and then uh, consider what you can do in your own facilities to do this. One thing that I've observed is uh, with really vigorous, the types of IV uh, fluid resuscitation that are often given in the hospital, um, in our sort of frail population, it's really easy to fluid overload them. And then you wind up with a whole different set of problems. Uh, so I think walking that fine line uh, is, is really important. Yeah. 
Very true, Carl. Always important to remember geriatric care principles. Thanks yeah. for that. Good. Well, so let's move on. Uh, I want to talk next about something that was very personal to you, your own column. And uh, wow, you had an open fracture of your ankle, like a uh, bone sticking out and whatnot, or? Yeah, it was, it was wow. very, very exciting. I'm glad <laughs> you so can much. laugh about it now. Yeah. But it's, it's fortunately, it's all healed now. I'm getting ready to be discharged from physical therapy with a, a full recovery. So um, I'm on the other end of it, but, um, I, I thought that um, I learned a couple lessons with all of that, and um, some of them could be really applied to work in post-acute and long-term care. Um, and, and there were three kind of points that um, I, I had some good experiences with, and then some maybe some areas that could have been improved. Um, but one was realistic expectations. I was very fortunate. I was um, taken to a, a trauma center, actually, and um, they um, were really great about setting realistic expectations, both in terms of my prognosis and what I could expect, um, kind of giving me the worst case scenario as well as what they anticipated would happen. Um, so I ha have to tell you, when they told me I might have external fixation, I was really thrilled to wake up and look down at my leg and see <laughs> that I, they were able to do the internal. I'm sure, um, yikes. And, and then also just in that rehab and recovery process, which so many of our uh, post-acute and long-term care uh, patients are, are engaged in, in, in our settings, um, knowing what recovery will look like um, and, and how, how it may vary. And just having those expectations, communicating that with patients or with patients' families. Um, there was an article um, recently published in 2021 that mentioned that family needs and expectations in nursing homes um, really highlighted that what families wanted most was understanding as much as possible about the patient's condition, the care delivered, and then any changes in treatment plans. And you know, I, I know it's such a busy setting right now, but if we can keep families and our patients updated, it really um, makes a big difference in terms of not only their satisfaction, but the quality of care. Yes, I, I just comment that, uh, I mean, um, it's really important to take the time to just pick up the phone and, and uh, call the person's uh, family member, their designated uh, agent or uh, what we used to call responsible party, the resident rep. Uh, and just say, hi, I'm going to be taking care of your mom or your husband or whatever it is. Um, and here's what's going on. Do you have any questions? And I can't tell you how many times people will say, oh, my God, this is the first time I have talked to a doctor in the week that my loved one was in the hospital. Thank you. And uh, so it creates a whole lot of good karma. And uh, it's just the right thing to do. And sometimes it uh, will yield really important information that you did not find in the hospital chart and nobody at the hospital ever, uh, ever got. So uh, thank you for, for emphasizing that. Yeah, absolutely. It, that first call might be a little lengthy, but I do find that once that trust is built, which kind of gets to the advocacy issue, um, you know, once that trust is built, then, you know, there really is a partnership uh, between uh, the provider and family. Uh, Paige Hector, who's the associate editor of Caring for the Ages, also in this issue, we're not highlighting it specifically, but she wrote a wonderful piece um, um, that focuses on partnering with staff for everyone's well-being. And it's designed for families, actually, on um, you know, how to try to be advocates, but build that relationship 
with the staff in post-acute and long-term care. So that's another yes. great resource. Yes, that's our caregiver's corner uh, in this issue. So uh, yes. I was going to mention that, so I'm glad you did. Yep. And then I guess the last piece was, um, I was kind of stunned with um, the fear of falls. It's something I think we still struggle with in post-acute and long-term care. And I can tell you, everyone was so afraid I was gonna fall again in the hospital, um, but yet they were happy to push me out in a wheelchair and then I was on my own. <laughs> right. So, you know, I just I always wanna take an opportunity to emphasize the importance of engaging um, you know, our residents in post-acute and long-term care in, some, in the physical activity that they're able to do safely. Um, and uh, because otherwise we see abrupt functional declines and um, that we don't necessarily need to. Yes, thank you so much for also mentioning that. I think that's super important. Not just the sort of self-advocacy and empowerment aspect, but really the, the rapid mobilization. I mean, as soon as, as somebody can get up, they should be gotten up. Our facilities are so risk averse. And of course, there's a good reason for that. There are a ton of nursing home negligence lawsuits that revolve around injuries from falls, uh, but facilities just need to care plan for risk of falls and uh, provide assistance when that's necessary. And uh, I think we should not let our fear of being sued uh, keep us from doing what's right by our residents. Yeah, the other thing is, um, if you look back at the literature, uh, despite there being a lot of evidence that engaging older adults in physical activity in outpatient settings, in uh, post-acute and long-term care settings, it actually doesn't increase the risk of falls. Right. Um, so it's it's a belief that's that's held. Um, but if you look at it at, on a more population level, it really doesn't bear out. And you know, if you think about it, if you're not letting somebody engage in physical activity and then you're sending them home, they're going to be right back on your doorstep, and you're going to have um, trouble in terms of your readmission right. rate. Right. The other the other hip will be fractured, or you're not you'll now have a subdural or something like that. So so exactly. very true. Carrying on the go will resume after this brief message from the foundation. I'm Susan Levy, the chair of the Foundation for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. And we're pleased to have this opportunity to share a glimpse of our mission and accomplishments due to donations from many of you listening, our generous donors. The Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Foundation is the only philanthropic entity dedicated exclusively to support and enable professionals and clinicians working in this critical service area. We've had the distinct pleasure to support such worthy projects as the Futures Program, providing more than a million dollars since inception to support practitioners developing their knowledge in their pursuits of service. Other funding priorities have included research on physician quality development measurements, the AMDA app, the Drive to Deprescribe initiative to optimize medication use in post-acute and long-term care, and AMDA's COVID-19 vaccination toolkit. Ongoing support will enable us to continue programs realizing our mission to support the quality of life for persons in the post-acute and long-term care spectrum, and to inspire future and current practitioners and demonstrate the value of a trained and engaged workforce. Visit our new website at paltcfoundation.org. Help us if you can and will, and thank you for your continued commitment to our field. And now back to our podcast. Thank you. So then I think the next article uh, is on one of my favorite topics, which is CNAs. 
our, our certified nursing assistants, to me, they have the most important job in our facilities. And really, God bless them. I, you know, they're the ones that know our residents the best. They're the ones that spend the most time at the bedside, giving that that tender, loving care. And um, I think they so often get short shrift, and they are sort of disrespected. And I, I was, was so happy to see this article. Uh, Lori Porter, she's a force of nature. So tell me a little bit about uh, about this article and and the focus of uh, this article about CNAs. Yeah, Lori Porter's been great and. Um, is the CEO and co-founder of the National Association of Healthcare um, Assistants and has partnered with AMDA a lot, particularly since the onset of the pandemic to really get the voice of uh, nursing assistants out there. Uh, the pandemic really gave CNAs a platform and it, for once, an interested audience. You know, those of us that work in the setting um, really uh, value them, but you know, I think the general public doesn't necessarily see them in the same light. Um, and so, um, you know, that's been another silver lining in terms of them having a greater voice. Yeah. Uh, we've lost so many of them um, in terms of leaving their positions. And unfortunately, some of them have even acquired COVID. And uh, this article talks about things that could be done uh, right away in terms of um, helping in terms of the staffing crisis and getting recognition for these port important members of the healthcare team. So getting residents and staff vaccinated and then really uh, making a push to invest in this very important workforce um, because, you know, long-term care can't happen without um, our nursing assistant partners. Yes, um, some, of the, some of the strategies they talked about was flexibility in terms of scheduling benefits. Uh, one of the uh, nursing assistants said, you have five different generations who are working as uh, nursing assistants in long-term care. And uh, what might be attractive to one group wouldn't necessarily to the other. Very and I, I thought that was a, a important point. Lots of great ideas about um, empowerment and building career ladders and really engaging them um, in, in, you know, in treatment teams and in discussions and decisions. So. Um, all good work there. And I always love to, to highlight the wonderful work that nursing assistants do. Yes, thank you. And I do, I, I love the idea of a kind of a career path and, and having the, the career of nursing assistant for those that don't want to proceed to become uh, licensed nurses or RNs, uh, that at least it's recognized as a real career and that there's their, their ability to be leaders in their own right uh, is recognized. And I, I did note that in the article, uh, uh, Dave Grabowski's uh, sort of statistics about uh, you know nursing assistant being the most dangerous job. I mean, worse than tree trimmer or uh, you know uh, heavy equipment operator or any of those things. Uh, and that's a, that's a sobering thought. And and you know. Again, God bless them. And uh, as you said, we've lost so many. There's a huge workforce shortage issue right now. And uh, all this talk about minimum staffing levels, it, you know, there just are not enough bodies right now to do that. And you know, somebody could be slinging burgers and getting paid the same or, you know, a little bit more, a little bit less, but not having to clean up bowel movements, not having to, you know, be kicked and scratched by uh, residents with dementia and so on. And um, you know, it's no wonder. So things that elevate that profession, I think uh, we should really try to work with. And, and certainly those of us that are 
medical directors and clinicians who work in this space, we have a lot of commonality with, with nursing assistants. And I think it's important for our listeners. I hope when you go into your buildings that you really call out your nursing assistants and thank them. And uh, it's just, their job is so important and uh, we need to be grateful. So actually um, it's kind of fun when you think about a lot of people in AMDA who um, might have different roles now. Um, Barb Resnick, myself, Alan Horowitz, who writes some of our legal columns. We all started our um, careers as nursing assistants. Yeah, so well, um, I'm sure a lot, lots of others as well. That's a career ladder because obviously Beth, not everybody, I mean, working in a nursing home, it's not Disneyland, you, you know, it's not for everyone. But for those of us who, who really love the work, uh, you know, it's got its own benefits. It's got its own rewards and, and we love it. And it's great to hear that uh, so many people after starting as a CNA, you know, wind up in, in other areas, but still coming back to this, this care setting that we love. So thank you for that. Yep. So, so now I'm going to turn the tables on you, Carl, <laughs> and I'm going to get to ask you a couple questions because one of the articles we selected to discuss in this podcast involves one that you wrote. Um, California requires all skilled nursing facility medical directors to be certified. Um, share with us a little bit of that journey. Yes, this is huge. And uh, Dr. Mike Wasserman and I wrote the article together, but Mike really did the uh, uh, you know, the lion's share of the work in getting this bill, AB 749, passed in California. And I encourage people to read the article because it's got a lot in it. But um, the short version is that uh, we approached a number of people. We found a state assembly person, uh, Nazarian, who was willing to uh, be the author of this bill. We made it really simple. It says, uh, no nursing home will employ a medical director who is not certified through the American Board of Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine, in other words, a CMD certificate, uh, within five years or, or by 2027. So that's, that's it. It's basically just that simple. Now, there were a few things during the evolution of the bill that, that came along, uh, perhaps most importantly, the State Department of Public Health. Um, said, we want to keep a registry of the medical directors and we want to follow uh, their progress towards certification, which is fantastic because we've been trying to get them to, to uh, keep a registry for quite a few years now. So that was really fantastic. And the amazing thing about this bill, I'll just say, uh, people were shocked. Uh, you know, the legislators were shocked to find out that there were no requirements beyond a medical license to be a nursing home medical director considering the importance of the job as defined under the federal regs and our California Title 22 state regs. So they were kind of blown away at that. And then to add to that, that a lot of nursing homes don't have any formal credentialing process. Uh, so essentially quality control of the medical care that's practiced falls entirely to that medical director. And you know, there's facilities with retired pediatricians or uh, you know, surgeons and people who have at least, you know, based on their specialty area, they don't have any real specialized knowledge about our care setting or about geriatric principles. Um, so anyway, needless to say, the bill was super popular um, in all of the committees it went through and in, in our assembly and in our Senate, it received zero no votes, not a single no vote. 
and was signed promptly by the governor um, last fall. So we're really excited about it. We hope it'll be something that will be scalable to, um, to other states. And uh, we were a little bit surprised at how little resistance there was. Uh, the state chapter of American Healthcare Association supported it, and it was not opposed by our medical association, California Medical Association, which in general opposes anything that sort of has mandates for doctors. So uh, we're really excited about it. Uh, it's a great accomplishment. And uh, thanks to Mike and to our state chapter, California Association of Long-Term Care Medicine or CalTCM for uh, uh, making this happen. Well, you know, Carl, when you can get something passed like this that unites both the political parties, you know you're doing something right. So, and, <laughs> Amen, and, sister. Yeah, con con congratulations. So right. And, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see um, it sounds like they're tracking data with this. You guys are going to be tracking data um, to yeah. see, um, you know, really to, to kind of prove that, um, you know, this model is, is so important. And, yeah, well, uh, there, there's some grumbling on the part of some longtime medical directors who are like, you know, I don't need a certificate. I know I know what I'm doing. And, and that's certainly true. Maybe some of them don't. But uh, unfortunately, there are a lot of medical directors out there who really don't, right? And uh, I don't want to cast aspersions on a particular specialty like hospital medicine, so I won't, or oops, maybe I just did, but um, you know, a lot of them, uh, you know, they're prescribing Seroquel PRN for sleep, and uh, they really have no knowledge of the 700 pages of regs that we have. So this, you know, the CMD taking the core curriculum will ensure that at least they have that baseline knowledge that will help them be good medical directors. It's not gonna magically make them be engaged in the care or care about the residents or anything like that, but at least it'll guarantee a baseline uh, knowledge level. And corollary to that, we've got to figure out how to measure it because it, the sunsets in 10 years. So we'll really want to uh, uh, show some demonstrable improvement by uh, initiating this requirement. Yep. Well, a great accomplishment and can serve as a guide, um, you know, for policy folks and practitioners and medical directors and in other states. Yeah, well, thank you for that. And so I think that wraps up our content. I just want to mention a few other things I saw in this fantastic issue. Please, everybody pull it up and read it. Um, we mentioned uh, Paige Hector's Caregiver's Corner, uh, which is good for residents and families, but probably also uh, for any of us. And thanks again for your uh, perspective as a patient. I think when those of us that are caregivers in general become the patients, it really gives us a, a different perspective and I think uh, enriches our, our understanding of the experience. Um, dear Dr. Steve and uh, Nicole Coniglio at, both had articles about antipsychotics, um, these uh, sort of inappropriate schizophrenia diagnoses that are sometimes being given in our patients, uh, you know, the use of mood stabilizers, which may be worse in some situations for behavioral uh, issues with dementia. Uh, and then uh, Milta Little and Nima Sharda uh, wrote a great one on um, using peer support type programs for pain management. So please take a look at that. And we also have a, a transitions column and a, a lovely ethics column. Uh, and I also wrote a piece about my year as uh, president of AMDA, which is going to be coming to a close in March. And finally, I want to just encourage everybody, if you have not signed up for our annual meeting, which will be March 10th to 13th in Baltimore, please do. And you can attend either virtually or in person, and you can change your mind depending on what happens with Omicron that we're hoping will sort of be swift and merciful 
and be over with here in the next few weeks. Uh, of course, who knows what the next curveball this uh, this virus is going to throw at us will be. But I'm planning to attend in person as it stands now, and I hope many of you will. But either way, please join us there. So. Uh, thanks, everybody. And uh, under the leadership of Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Beth Gaelic, Caring for the Ages continues to review and reflect the wonderful work being done by the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine's leaders, members, and communities. So please take a look at this January-February issue. Dr. Gaelic, thank you so much for spending your time with Caring on the Go, and thank you for your continuing excellent work at the helm of my favorite periodical. Thanks so much, Carl. Um, and I have to say, uh, you had a hard act to follow with Wayne, but you did a fantastic job. And I'll look forward to partnering with you in uh, future uh, podcasts. Yes, it should be a lot of fun. I'm really looking forward to it. So references for this podcast can be found at www.caringfortheages.com. And also please follow us on Twitter. It's at Caring for the Ages, all one word. Thank you so much. And until next time, I'm Dr. Carl Steinberg for Caring on the Go. If you are a physician interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, go to our learning management system at apex.com. P-A-L-T-C dot org. That's A-P-E-X dot P-A-L-T-C dot org. Click on the podcast and follow the link to this episode.